0: We're going to look this morning at John 19, 16 to 30. And I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. So, having taken the Lord Jesus into that trial before Pontius Pilate, and now he has been condemned, he has been unjustly judged, he has been handed over to the will of the people. They have cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Uh, the Jews and the Romans. Everyone has turned on the Lord Jesus. His own disciples have forsaken him and fled. You'll remember Peter has denied him. Before that, Judas has betrayed him. And now John, who is an eyewitness to this and the only disciple who hasn't forsaken Jesus, writes these words, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus literally in the center of them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I think it is a fair statement to say that the matters in this chapter have formed the content of more literature, more poetry, more hymns, more music, more artwork than any other matter in human history. It's actually remarkable when you think about how much of the culture throughout The entire history of the New Covenant, but especially in the Western world, has been given shape and form and focus by what we're reading about here. As I said already, these are the weightiest matters. This is the epicenter of Christianity. There is nothing more significant for our souls than what we read in this chapter. Here the Lord Jesus is going to be crucified, and if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know that the center of Paul's theology, the center of New Testament theology, is the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Now, here are the historical facts. John actually doesn't interpret it for us in any great detail. These are, this is a history of the facts of what happened to the Lord Jesus. The rest of the New Testament is going to shed interpretive light on that and and tell us what's going on. Now, keep in mind, John, as I said, was an eyewitness to these things. He was there standing at the foot of the cross. He heard the things that we're reading about. He saw the things that we're reading about. He will tell us elsewhere that you can know these things because his testimony is true, because he witnessed them. This is John who would say in 1 John that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have looked upon, which we have handled with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen and bear witness that eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. This John is now going to set out The details of the crucifixion. He's going to do so in a way that complements the other three gospels. There are things here that are not there. There are things there that are not here. John is drawing these things together in a very intentional way. And I think it might help us to reflect this morning before we look at this in any detail on the fact that John is most likely an old man when he is writing this gospel. Most scholars are going to believe that he is reflecting back to when he was a young man there at the foot of the cross, but now as an older man, he has, he has processed all that he witnessed. He has heard that fuller revelation that the Spirit has given to himself and the other apostles, and, and he has processed all of that so that what John is writing is full of theological significance, even though he's giving us historical details. And I think this morning it might help if we just look at this passage together under two theological themes, if we could say that. And I think John is really packaging all of this for us under these two points this morning. First, I want us to consider the crucified king, and then secondly, I want us to consider the crucified priest, the crucified king and the crucified priest. Well, notice those first words in verse 16. So they took Jesus. Um, They led him out. I think John is reflecting here on the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 53, that great song of the suffering servant. He was led, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Here he is being taken. As Jesus himself had said, he would be taken by lawless hands. And here the soldiers now lead him out. And at some point in leading him out, they decide that it would be right and good because it was the practice with all of those criminals that they were crucifying to lay the cross on him and make him carry his own instrument of torture and death. Now, the cross was the perfection of torture, The Romans had learned how to perfect torture. Um, They had learned a way to torture criminals and enemies in such a way that they would stay alive through the torture. They would feel the agony. They would experience many long hours, up to 36 or 40-some hours of agony agony and torture, physical pain, not being able to have any relief whatsoever. Um, it's interesting, John doesn't focus on the torture aspect. This is one of the weaknesses of movies about Jesus um, that people say are so powerful. First of all, that's not Jesus, and I really don't want Jim Caviezel's face in my head when I'm praying to Jesus, I'll just say that, um, but, but they focus on the physical agony. John simply says, v- verse 18, there they crucified him. John is going to focus on other aspects of the crucifixion. He's going to focus on what God has planned and what God is doing, and what's happening within Jesus as he looks out on those who are crucifying him. Um, as he is the subject of all eyes. By the way, he is the key character at this point. Isn't that interesting? Throughout, we've seen all these interactions, but here at the crucifixion, John even says that in God's providence, Jesus was crucified in the center between two thieves. He is numbered with the transgressors. He is counted as a transgressor because he is going to be made a curse for us. He is hanging in the place of Barabbas where Barabbas should have been, but in God's providence he's in the center because all the focus is on Christ. Um I noted that this is this is the crucifixion of the king. Remember the accusations that were brought against Jesus in the trial. He makes himself a king. There is, there is divine irony here. He is the king. He is establishing an everlasting kingdom, but he's not doing it the way you and I would have a king establish a kingdom. He is not doing it the way the world would have a king establish a kingdom. He is doing it in the most unlikely way possible by dying for sinners in the place of sinners as a substitute king in order to set up his throne in their hearts and their lives. In a very real sense, and the old theologians used to say this a lot, but in a very real sense, uh, the cross is the throne of the Lord Jesus. He is establishing the kingdom when he hangs on the cross. This is even seen, though it's not in our passage, with, with him redeeming one of the thieves, isn't it? That, that one of those themes lives and one will perish because he is there on his throne exercising his kingly rule as he is suffering under the wrath of God. J.C. Ryle says this. Listen to this. Even on the cross, our Lord gave an emblem of his kingly power. On his right hand was a saved soul whom he admitted into his kingdom, on his left hand a lost soul, whom he leaves to reap the fruit of his own ways. There was right and left on the cross, even as there will be right and left, saved and unsaved, when he sits on the judgment seat, wearing the crown on the last day. Isn't that an awesome thought? He is exercising his kingly rule when he is nailed to the tree. And so it is fitting, in God's providence, it is fitting that Pilate would write that inscription and put it on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate is almost certainly writing this because he is wanting to inflict harm on the Jewish people. He hates the Jewish people. He's mocking them. He's scorning them. He knows that they hate the idea that Jesus might be their king. And he has examined him and found nothing wrong with him, And so he placards this on the cross, not necessarily over Jesus. It just simply says on. We're not even sure the cross was shaped like we think today. It was more of a T, most likely. But he puts this on the cross, and he puts it in three languages so that everyone who happens to be in Jerusalem during the Passover can read this, can see this. And and he thinks, in some sense, he is heaping scorn on them. And mocking them. And yet, as you and I both know, it is God who has put that plaque on the cross of Jesus. You know, the people try to get Pilate to change what he's done. The chief priest and the Jews, verse 21, said, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate speaking better than he knows, says, what I have written, I have written. There is all of the eternal divine purpose in that answer. God has put Christ on the cross. The Lord Jesus is God. He has put himself on the cross. Um, Peter on Pentecost says to some of those Jews who were there, you took him and crucified him, But this was because of God's determined purpose in delivering up his son. Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. And yet we understand that this is God's signature on the cross. Um, Jesus is going to establish the kingdom of God in the hearts of his people by hanging on the tree for the sins of his people. Um, You know, it's interesting and while this is not in this passage, but it's in the other gospels and Luke especially, you know that, that was that was a proclamation of the gospel being affixed to the cross. I mean, what was it that made the thief on the cross who repented and cried out to Jesus? What made him say, Remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus didn't look like he had a kingdom. His hands and feet were nailed to the tree. He had no power to save himself at that moment. And yet that thief understood that this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What made him? He saw that inscription, no doubt. That was the proclamation of the gospel. This is the King. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the one who is going to establish God's rule on earth and overthrow all the wicked nations of the world so that one day... Every knee would bow, and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. You know, Jesus is here receiving, as it were, a little tiny foretaste of what the Father had promised him in eternity. While he's suffering on the cross, he is conquering Satan's kingdom and establishing God's. And remember, the Father had said to him in Psalm 2, ask of me, and I will give you the nation's for your inheritance, and the kingdoms for the end of the earth. The Son had asked, and now the Son would atone for those people out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. So interesting, isn't it, that that inscription would be written in the major languages of the world, in Aramaic or Hebrew, in Greek, in Latin. John Calvin, reflecting on that, said that God put that sign on the cross in those languages, Calvin says, to indicate that the time was now at hand when the name of the Son should be made known throughout the whole earth. Isn't that awesome? God put that sign on the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, because the time had come that his name would be made known through all the earth, and he is really and truly the King of the true Israel of God those who believe in him, from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. He is the king of true Jews, those who know God and worship him in the spirit and trust him. It's profound that God would order these events at the epicenter of history to show so much of his kingdom and so much of his kingly rule and plan for his people. I want to... to just ask ourselves the question, when we think about Christ crucified, do we think he died so that he might rule over me? That's the right response to this, that you would, you would say to yourself, when I think of my Lord Jesus dying for me, one of the great thoughts I ought to have is that he did that so that he might rule over me. And what a king. What a king so full of grace and mercy. You would not want any other king than this king ruling over you. What a king so full of compassion, so full of power and majesty and justice, but so full of grace to sinners like us. Think of that. That's, that's the role of Christ in us so sweetly bringing us to himself. There's a beautiful psalm, by the way, Psalm 45, about the king and his, and his beauty and glory that he is fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon his lips. We're going to see that in the very things he says on the cross. There is kingly grace poured out of his lips in those seven sayings. Three of which we're going to look at in a moment. But, but this is the king, and he has died to win your affection, to win your trust, and to win your allegiance. He has died to conquer all of your enemies. Satan, sin, death, even the wrath of God. He's died to conquer all of that. Calvin says this, Christ was made subject to the curse in order that he might redeem us from the curse. He was made sin in order that we might be the righteousness of God in him. He was led out of the city in order that he might carry with him and take away our defilements which were laid on him. That's what kind of king we have. You know, one obscure writer reflecting on that title and Pilate's inscription said something along these lines. You know, there's another inscription on the cross. There's there's another handwriting on the cross because the Apostle Paul will say that when he was nailed to the tree, he blotted out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. He blotted it out like a ledger had all of our debts and sins and he blotted it out with his blood on the cross. And that's how he establishes his kingdom among us and in us. What a king we have. We'd ask this morning, is he your king? Have you called out to the Lord Jesus and have you said, I would only have you rule over. Remember what they say in one of the parables, we will not have this man rule over us. Will believers say, Lord Jesus, I want you and only you to rule over me. Establish your throne that you established on the cross in my heart. Well, I want us to consider, secondly, the crucified priest. And this may not be as obvious to you on the surface, and yet I think that there is almost certainly deep significance here. Notice I want to just point out before we look at Christ as priest that if you want to know what's in the human heart, if you want to know what's in your heart and my heart by nature, what's in the hearts of all men is that we would rather by nature gamble for the clothes of Jesus than trust in him for redemption. That's how base men are. If you want to see depravity in all of its full display while Christ is atoning for the sins of his people, for your sins and my sins, men, soldiers, are there mocking him by gambling for his clothing. What a what a display. And yet, John gives us these intimations, I think. I don't think he tells us about the, the seamless tunic in vain. You know, we've been seeing this interaction in the last uh, section of the high priest with Pilate. And, and there's this sort of focus that John has on the priest, the unjust priest of, of Israel. These are the ones that are so, supposed to be leading God's people into his presence. These are the ones who are supposed to be mediating for them. These are the ones that are supposed to be sacrificing on their behalf on the day of atonement. These are the ones who are to stand as representatives of God to men and, and of men to God. They, they are to be the middlemen between God and man, and yet these are the ones that hate the true priest so much that they've cried out for his crucifixion. And yet, I think John sees, even in the clothing of Jesus, something of his priestly work on display at the cross. Because if you went back to Exodus and you read about those instructions of the priesthood, that that the priest was to wear this seamless garment, as it were, from head to toe. You know, John will pick up on this in the last book of the Bible. When he has that vision of Jesus exalted and glorified and his eyes are like a flame of fire and a sword goes out of his mouth and his feet are like burnished bronze and John said he was clothed with a robe down to his feet and girded about his waist with a golden band. What What is that picture? He is the priest. And here on the cross, his his, as it were, symbolic priestly garments are on display because he is Coming as the priest to do what the priest should have done for the people, but what he alone could do for you. He is the only one who could bring the better sacrifice because he would bring himself as the offering. Isn't that awesome? He's coming as the priest, he's bringing himself as the sacrifice. And he is making you know that he has done what no other priest could do. All the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But the writer of Hebrews says, but he, by offering himself once for all, has perfected God's people. His blood can reach into the very depths of our consciences to cleanse us from all of the uncleanness and impurity that marks us and defiles us. Think about that. Just as he can establish his rule in your heart as king by hanging on the cross, he can reach into your very conscience with his blood as the priest to wash you internally. That's an awesome thought. Think of what the hymn writer says, wash me, Savior, or I die. He is, he is sacrificing himself for his people. You know, J.C. Ryle said this in Jesus being stripped of his seamless garment. He says, our Lord was in a striking manner our substitute. He was stripped naked and reckoned and dealt with as a guilty sinner in order that we might be clothed with the garment of his perfect righteousness and reckoned righteous. That's what The priest is doing for us he is representing us on the cross he is standing in our place and he is saying essentially my father i am here for for those sinful men and women that you sent me into the world to redeem because i have loved them because of our great compassion for them and my father look on me as the sacrifice look on me as i bring the sacrifice look on what i am doing in their place this is what i meant when i said this is the center of redemption. This is it. This is where we don't want to ever move from. Right there. And, you know, I noted that as a king, he had those, that, that gracious rule over his people, and, and that, that really comes out in what he says when he's on the cross. I want us to especially consider Christ as our priest in the three words that John now draws attention to. Notice, as the soldiers are doing these things, there's sort of a, a, a shifting of the camera, as it were, to the foot of the cross, and there at the foot of the cross was Mary and some of the other women who have supported Jesus, and there is the beloved disciple John, not because he was loved more, but because he understood the love of Christ better, and, and they're there at the foot of the cross, and they're watching, and, and can you imagine a mother having to watch her son undergo the death penalty? There's a special bond, you don't even need me to tell you this, between a mother and her children and between a mother and her sons. I've tried to get my sons to have that bond with me. They will not. Um, Imagine what's happening as Mary is watching this. Remember Simeon. So long before, when that prophet made that announcement, when Mary brought the infant Jesus into the temple to circumcise him, and remember, Simeon had prepared her, and he said, look, this child is for the rising and falling of the nations and a sign to be spoken against. And and he says, "But, but a sword is even going to pierce your own soul. There is going to be deep pain when you see what happens to him. He's reflecting on this. What he says to her in the temple when Christ is an infant is is now coming to fruition. This is going to tear into the very heart of Mary. Now, I want us to consider Christ's compassion. He's not thinking about himself. I want you to try to think if you were nailed to a tree, you would probably be cursing and swearing like all the other wicked criminals who were nailed to trees, but not the Lord Jesus He was not thinking about himself. He was thinking about everyone else. He had done that in the first cry in Luke. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. Wow. If that doesn't astonish you, I have nothing else. The first thing he cries out on the cross, now as he looks at his mother, and he realizes she is most likely a widow at this point. We have heard so little about Joseph, and, and he, he knows the heartbreak that she's going to experience. He will not be here with her anymore. And so he says to her, when he sees his mother and the disciples standing nearby, he said to her, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Now, now this is not a term of disrespect. Disrespect. Jesus is not saying a derogatory statement. What he is doing, I think, in a very real sense, is he is doing two things, and then he is providing and caring in a very specific way for Mary. Here's what he's doing. Number one, he wants Mary to see her need for him as her Savior. He doesn't address her as mother because he wants her to see that she needs a Savior, Remember, Mary had cried out in the Magnificat, My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary needed a Savior. Mary was not sinless. And so Jesus is wanting her to see that her relationship to him has to be one of Savior to sinner, not son to mother. I wonder also if there's not a little intimation here that Jesus is addressing Mary according to Genesis 3.15 that he is the seed of the woman, that she is the woman who is born that long-awaited promised seed, Redeemer, the first gospel promise. But Jesus is also caring compassionately for the need of his mother. He is fulfilling the law of God while he's hanging on the cross. For every time we have dishonored our parents, he honored his parents perfectly. Even to the point when he hung on the cross, he is fulfilling the law, his act of obedience is being wrought on the cross as he keeps that commandment to honor your mother. It's remarkable. He is the compassionate priest, though, he is preparing a home for her. And and he is entrusting her to the care of one he knew would care for her. He is even caring for his mother while he's dying. It's remarkable. But Jesus is not just just thinking about Mary. He is there on the cross for all of his people. And as the great high priest, he is there to fulfill what the Scriptures have spoken. And notice John says after this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Now, this is the only statement John gives us that might be construed as an insight into the physical agony That Jesus was so dehydrated by the the suffering of the cross that he cried out, I thirst. And yet John tells us there's, there's more to that. He says that he cried it out to fulfill the scriptures. What scripture? Psalm 22. Remember, the psalmist says, my tongue cleaves to my jaw. That's the psalm that begins with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus realizes that's about him. He had spoken that by his spirit through David. And and here on the cross, he is thirsting in the place of his people under the wrath of God. Remember the rich man in his parable, the rich man and Lazarus. And they both die. And remember the rich man had not cared for Lazarus, wouldn't even give him a drop of water to help him in his affliction. And he goes to hell and he's in torments. And he begs Abraham just to have Lazarus take one of those crusty fingers and just give him a drop of water because the thirst was so excruciating. That's what Jesus is enduring on the cross. He is standing in the place of his people. He is enduring the wrath that we deserve. That is glorious. He is thirsting as if he were enduring hell itself because he is enduring the wrath of God on your behalf for your sin and my sin. You know, there's another sense, and this is amazing. Uh, An old theologian named Quesnell, I'd never thought about this, but it's both convicting and comforting. He said, When Jesus thirsted on the cross, the tongue of Jesus underwent its own particular torment in order to atone for the ill use which men make of their tongues. By blasphemy, Evil speaking, vanity lying, and gluttony. Wow, that's a thought. Every time we've slandered others, gossiped, said things we shouldn't have said, spoken impatiently, said hateful things, his tongue, he's suffering to atone for our sins in that area. Remember, Isaiah himself had said when he was called by God, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And an angel came and took a coal from the altar, that's a picture of the cross, and touched his tongue and said, I, I've cleansed you, I've taken away your iniquity. Jesus is there thirsting to take away our sins. And then the final of the three cries that John focuses on, notice as we come to the end of this passage, when Jesus had received the sour wine, and what a, what a mockery that his torment is going to be added to. He, he is crying out in thirst, and three times John mentions sour wine, sour wine, sour wine. You know, I wonder, Adam took that sweet fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and brought all the sin and misery into this world, Jesus goes to the other tree as the last Adam, and he takes the sour wine to himself. I wonder if John is not intending for us to see something of that. And notice John says in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, this is arguably the most comforting of the seven sayings of our Lord. They're all comforting, but you probably know this. It's one word in Greek, and you probably know this. It means paid in full. It's a banking term. And what Jesus is doing is he's looking back at everything he came into the world to do, everything the Father had sent him to do for us. And you remember at creation, when God looks back over what he has made, and he says it is good. Here he is nailed to the tree, looking back over a far greater work than creation, the work of redemption. And he's looking at everything he has come to do, and he is recognizing he has done it to the full and perfectly. He is recognizing that atonement has been made. He's recognizing that there will be no condemnation for those who will be in him by faith. He's recognizing that he has removed the wrath of God. He's recognizing that he has crushed the head of the evil one, that he has disarmed principalities and powers. He is recognizing that he has secured the new creation and the new heavens and new earth. And he's looking back over what he's done. Remember, in that high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Here on the cross, he is acknowledging it is finished There is nothing that can detract from it. There is nothing that can be added to it. This is the epicenter. Um, You know, when we look at our lives and we see just how much sin there is, how much waywardness, how much rebellion, how many corrupt thoughts, how many selfish thoughts, how many... Judgmental thoughts, how many lustful thoughts, how many sinfully angry thoughts, just the weight, the weight of that. And then, and then acknowledging that we're never going to really and truly finish anything. Man, that's depressing. <laughs> you get over one thing, there's more work to do. You get the kids raised and out of the house, I mean, I don't know, are they going to make it? Who knows? Nothing is ever truly finished. We never truly finish anything in this life. And, and listen to this. John Flavel, the Puritan, said this. He said, Jesus Christ has finished all his work, though we can finish none of ours. Though we be defective, poor, imperfect creatures in ourselves, yet notwithstanding, we are complete in him. That's what the cry, it is finished, is saying. The priest is saying, I have brought the sacrifice. I have made atonement for my people. They are going to be complete in me. It is finished. Flavel says, though we cannot perfectly obey or fulfill one command of the law. You can't fulfill one of God's ten commandments perfectly. Not one. In this life, you will never, ever keep one of God's commandments perfectly. Perfectly. Flavel says, though we cannot perfectly obey or fulfill one command of the law, yet the righteousness of the law is fulfilled here. Christ's complete obedience is imputed to us, makes us complete and without fault before God. Praise the Lord for that. Because our consciences will terrify us every day of our life until we have come to the foot of the cross. And we have heard our great high priest cry out, it is finished, it is paid in full. Debts are canceled, justice is satisfied, wrath is propitiated, Satan is defeated, the future is secured, and my people are going to be complete in me. And the second you try to add something to that in your sense of superior wisdom, you lose what that is. Listen, we've got to repent of our sins. You have to repent of your sins, and you have to believe in Jesus. But your repentance and faith do not finish this. Jesus does. Your repentance and faith do not atone for your sins. You must repent and believe in order to own Christ, to stay close to Christ, and to stay in fellowship with God. But it does not atone for your sins. Jesus cried, it is finished. And we need all of this to just sink down deep into our souls every day of our life. You know, we sin when we forget this. Um, When we act harshly with our children or others, we forget this. This is it. This has to come to bear on everything constantly. Um, I want to just encourage you this morning, if you are in Christ by faith, this is your king, and this is your priest, and he has done everything on that cross for you. And this is the center of gravity for your soul. Jesus wants you to be there, as it were spiritually, at the foot of the cross, the way Mary was there and John was there, and those women were there. He wants you to stay at the foot of the cross. He wants you to stay outside the empty tomb. He wants you to be established in these truths. Uh, He wants to rule over us. Let me say this as we close here this morning. The Lord Jesus wants to rule over us. I need him to rule over me in a lot more areas of my life, and you need him to rule over you in a lot more areas of your life. And this is how he rules. He rules from the cross. And then I want to say this morning that you and I need a priest who ever lives to make intercession for us because he has already satisfied everything and sacrificed himself for us. And we need to learn to live in light of that. If you are not a believer this morning, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, I hope that God uses this to draw you to him because you need a king and you need a priest, and he is the only king and priest that can do for your soul and to bring you through Judgment Day and to give you everlasting life. He is it, and this is where he's done it. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would help us to see all of these things with the eyes of faith. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have suffered for us. We thank you that these things are true. We thank you that you are the king who has established your kingdom in our hearts through your death on the cross. We thank you that you are the great high priest of your church who has already finished the work of atonement by your sacrifice. We ask our Lord that you would help us to live in light of these things more and more until we see you on your throne Until we are gathered before you and bowing our knees before you, we pray that you would make us to see these things with the eyes of faith and that you would cause them to impact us in such a way that we would be changed by them. Our God, would you work in every heart and mind present here through these truths this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.